Now, one of the reasons that we're looking at this, this book is that Raglan Road Church, like the, probably the majority of churches, if not all churches across the world, are right now in a season of rebuilding, of restarting, of replanting, of refreshing. Um, now, we've had the COVID impact. We've had the impact of change of leadership, which we're still processing and going through. And we know that change is never easy. We know that loss is never easy. And we've experienced a lot of loss here. And we've, it's fair to say it's challenging. But in the midst of, of change, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of loss, we have our eyes fixed on Jesus. And we are about his work, his rebuilding, his repurposing. And when our eyes are focused on that, a lot of those things do tend to become, they're never gone. Let's, let's be honest, they're never gone. But they become less significant in our lives as we focus on the building. So I just want to emphasize something Chris said last week about obstacles. And he talked about some quite personal ones that he'd experienced as a leader of the church. He was told that he only got the role of, of senior leader because he was a safe pair of hands. I can safely say that no one's ever told me that. But anyway, um, but, there, but there is an obstacle here that I really feel actually we do need to overcome. There's an obstacle here at Raglan Road and probably in many churches. But I do feel here for Raglan Road, sometimes we have this obstacle. I've had it myself and I've been guilty of this myself. And it's spoken often. I think one of the biggest obstacles to overcome is that we will look around at what is around us. We will see brokenness. We see crises. Uh, and we look probably also at the things we've done in the past and think, oh, those things haven't succeeded. And we may look at the current needs that we face. We may look at the past attempts that we've tried. We may say, it's just not been that breakthrough. And begin with all those things that mount up to go, well, nothing can change. Nothing can change. Nothing can change in our church. Nothing can change in Cape Hill. Nothing can change in Smethwick. And I believe that's a piece of rubble <laughs> that we need to clear. Because God has a vision for changed lives. Has a vision for transformed streets. Restored lives. He's a vision for restored families. Now I admit with human eyes as I walk around, I find it really hard to see sometimes. But it can happen. Breakthrough will come. Hallelujah. Breakthrough will come. Uh, we're, we're dealing at the moment with a house at the back that we're trying to obviously work with and look at our offices being there and we want it to become a house of prayer and we want it to be a house of study and a place where people can meet with God in the garden. And, and basically, uh, if you were on the, the Renew Wellbeing training this week, you'll know that um, Ruth Rice, who leads up, talks about building a retreat center in urban areas. And again, I've got to be honest and I've thought that through and gone, you're joking me, aren't you? A retreat center. Why would I want to come to a retreat center in the middle of Smethwick, behind a 90-foot minaret tower, you know, next to a hospital? Why would I want to build an urban retreat center here in the midst of Smethwick? I felt that. I felt, why on earth would I do? Why would I want to do that? But God wants to build something. He wants to build those thin places between heaven and earth, right here in the midst of places like Smethwick that have issues. Yes, but God wants to encounter people here in this place. I love going to a stream and a brook. I love going to rural spaces to have retreat. Absolutely, don't get me wrong. Take the opportunity if you do to go to a rural space and be in the quiet and the peace. But God can build a retreat place here. He can build a space where people can meet with God and it can happen. You know, I remember listening to a talk at a festival by quite a well-known preacher. He talked about the prophetic being restricted in places of spiritual oppression where other faiths reigned and where deprivation is high. Now, he may well be right in what he said. He may well be right. But I pray for the spiritual landscape to change. 
so that there is breakthrough, so the prophetic and other gifts, not just prophetic, but other gifts can be displayed. The power of God can be displayed. So there's been many things that you, uh, uh, you know, and this is, I'm saying I'm guilty of this, many things spoken over our lives where we believe maybe, oh, God can't quite do it here like he can do somewhere else. But I believe breakthrough can come in Smedic. Breakthrough can come in this place. A thin place can be between earth and heaven can happen here. This can be a house of prayer and this can change lives. So I just wanted to do that first just to get rid of that bit of rubble. From <laughs> There's lots of rubble that we talked about last week and I'm not going to throw my notes down because I'm, I'm on an iPad for a start so that's not going to be helpful. But you know, I'm not here to say you know, we've got it all right. Of course not. But I am here to say when we see rubble, let's throw it away. Let's discard it and let's say, yes, Lord, you can come for your glory and honor to bring breakthrough here. So I want to look at Nehemiah then, this, this idea of Nehemiah as a man with a call, a man on a mission and a man with a vision. And I hope you feel engaged in the work of God. I hope you feel called to be engaged in the work of God, that it's done through his people, it's done through his church. And I hope you know that mission is something that we're all about. God's love is for everybody in this world. And all of us are missionaries. And I don't want to go into a debate about that right now. I hope that isn't too much of a struggle for you to understand that God has called us all to mission. But what I do sometimes find a struggle, and I've I've had conversations with people, is to find out specifically what God's call on their life is. You know, and, and I feel that God's given me at times some clarity on my call. Sometimes it's drifted a little bit, but I've had some clarity. I feel that I'm called to be a missionary here to Cape Hill. That's probably my primary call. I certainly feel a call to help church leaders in my other job that I have, stress the importance of social justice and care for the poor. That's one of the things that I feel called to. And I feel a very strong call on my life to build that community, to build that, we just talked about doing retreat, but building community, you know, building a space where people come daily, a daily praying church, a daily praying community, a serving daily community, a serving, a restoring people daily uh, community. And I believe that is church and that's what we're trying to build. And now some of those calls may be specific to me they may be specific to my life and there's some parts of that call that you may share with me and of course there are some common calls on our life we're all called to obedience we're all called to follow God's commands and requirements we're called and we've sang it this morning effectively to take up our cross to give our lives to Jesus to sacrifice our everything to give him our worship our all we're all called to I believe to act justly love mercy Walk humbly with our God. That's one of God's requirements. It says in his word, I believe we're called to go and make disciples. I believe they are all calls on our lives so that we can say here today we have a common call. But there are some specific calls. You'd be glad to know that I am not called to lead worship and sing at the front. Amen. Uh, I don't feel particularly calling to be a counselor to help those with some really difficult, desperate needs. I don't feel that's a call on my life. I hope other people feel that call because we need those people. Um, not all of us are called to leadership. Uh, I hope that some of those that are going to be asked to be on our leadership team will feel called soon. But anyway, that's another question. But even if those who, um, even if those things aren't our calls from God, every single one of us is called to contribute to God's work. We're called to serve in a place. We're called to serve with opportunities. That's what Chris was saying a lot last week about Nehemiah. Nehemiah, the story of Nehemiah is the sense that you're called to serve in your place with the opportunity you've been given. His opportunity came in the Old Testament when God's people were coming back from exile to rebuild the city of Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple. Now, many of us know that story, and part of that series is to help us to understand the story better and get us back to being familiar with that story. 
But in one sense, this morning, I don't actually want to focus on what Nehemiah was called to do. I don't want to focus on the task that he was given. I want to focus a little bit more on how he went about his calling. Because some of us may be struggling to know actually what our calling is. Where is the place and opportunity that God's given us? But I think it becomes easier when we actually know the how. How do we operate with the call of God on our life? So, so I know this morning my tendency would be to, to jo- get you to join with me in the call of God on my life. You know, to see the broken healed, to see the poor raised up, to see churches planted and communities changed. And I so want you to do it. I could go on for that and, oh, you know, I'll go off on tangents. I know that. Okay, that will happen. But I want to try to avoid the what we do to focus on the how. And I want to start by reading these first two verses of Nehemiah 2, verse 1 to 2. It says, early the following spring in the month of Nisan, other car makes are in the front, in the month of Nisan, during the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that's slightly, hopefully I've got that one right, King Artaxerxes' reign, I was serving the king his wine. I have never before appeared sad in his presence, so the king asked me, why are you looking so sad? You don't look sick to me, you must be deeply troubled. So here we have Nehemiah, he's the cupbearer to the king of Persia. What a great job that is, traveling with the king. He's in the king's winter residence of Susa, and he's sipping the king's wine all day, and he's going about his merry way, probably sometimes very merry way by the sounds of the job that he's got. That's what he does for a living. In the UK, that would be like you know, God giving me a role where I would, I don't know, go to the queen's winter residence, which is Sandringham, test her tea, because I believe, she, you know, I'm, I want to believe she drinks more tea than wine. That's my... You know, maybe test out the scones, and the scones aren't because we're posh, not scones. Yeah, so all that sort of stuff. That's the type of thing, and it's a very comfortable and probably quite a wonderful position. It's a wonderful position of privilege to be doing that. Do you imagine if you were called to to work in the royal household, what a privilege that would be. But Nehemiah, as we go through this passage, begins to have this burden. In the midst of this comfort, there is this burden. And I believe that is the first how of our calling. We need to have a burden. It's clear that God is putting something on Nehemiah's heart. And the first question to ourselves is, what is God putting on our hearts? Part of the how of our calling is knowing where that burden is. It's where our passion often comes from. We talked about that with our superhero strengths. One aspect of that is not just your gifts, not just your talents and your knowledge, but is your passion. What is God giving you a burden for? And of course, Nehemiah had this burden for the situation back in Jerusalem. So we see in the book before in Ezra, we see exiles going back home. We see them starting to rebuild. But then, of course, the threats start coming from the surrounding nations. And Nehemiah hears of this and has a heart and a burden for his homeland. And some of you right here, right now, have a burden for a land, a place. It might be a burden for Smethwick. It might be a burden for a land that you've left, a nation that you've left. God has put something on your heart. Right now, you know, just in, in, don't have to say it out loud, but in, just name that place, that thing that God has put in your heart right now. God hears your cries. You know, we should all carry that burden. Now, this isn't a burden about worry or anxiety. Those are burdens that we are called to cast onto Jesus. But this is a God-given bur- burden, something that he's asking you to carry, albeit carry with him. This is not something you have to carry on your own. You're carrying it with God. But it is a burden nonetheless that you should have. So I've talked about the burden for the poor, very strong burden on my life, for the broken, 
for those that have suffered injustice in this land, who needs God's justice, that justice, that sense of collective righteousness needing to happen. You know, we've talked about the power of God. You might have this burden to see God raise up more of the supernatural in our churches. You might grieve that churches sometimes seem to lack faith. You know, that's a good burden to have. I believe that God probably has, has that burden. Your burden might be inequality. Your burden might be the environment, the lack of care for God's creation. It might be lost rich souls, and there are plenty of them around. It might not be a burden for the poor. It might be good. You've got people around you that have got lots of money, but they are lost, and God's given you a burden for them. It might be a burden to have words of wisdom and words of knowledge in your workplace, in your day-to-day space, not just in church. You've got a burden to say, Lord, come and speak to me in the midst of where I am. Whatever burden you've been given, that is for me is the how of your calling. Where does it start? It starts with this burden. Nehemiah's burden is for that broken state, that broken place of Jerusalem. He weeps over the city. Of course, this is not just a Nehemiah thing. This is a Jesus thing. He weeps over the city. Do you weep over Snedek? Do you weep over the nation that's on your heart right now? When I hear what goes on in some nations, I weep. I weep. I have a burden, and a burden is tough. Often when you have a burden, say, Lord, please take this burden from me. Please take this cup, as Jesus says, from me. But a burden is part of your Christian calling. So if you're struggling to know what your calling is, Ask God to give you a burden. <laughs> this isn't asking God to cast your burdens, is it? It's saying, give me a burden. Give me a passion. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. So Nehemiah has this burden. He has four months of bearing this news, four months of bearing this grief. And even the king, who I'm going to assume with a name like Artaxerxes, is quite aloof. I'm sorry, King Artaxerxes, I don't... But I imagine that kings, because they're bound to be, aren't they? They're, they're revered. They're not probably looking at what the, the nature of their servants and their households and what their emotions are. But even this king is noticing that this Nehemiah has a burden. He's down. He's not happy. You know, when you have a burden, people will notice it. There'll be times when you have a burden that's so strong that actually you might lose friends over it. In fact, actually, I'd say you will lose friends over it. They won't understand you. They won't understand your burden. It will cause you pain. But that's why we need the next how. And the next how of Nehemiah was that he prayed. He prayed. Now, Beth will talk more about this next week. But he prays for God to do something about this burden. You know, you're not alone in this call that God has given you. When we talk about casting our burdens, I think this is a burden that we do cast on to Jesus. We say, Lord, help us in this burden. But he is with us, as I've said. He is with us in that. And we pray. You know, sometimes when we pray, um, God gives us a pers- his perspective on that call. If it's our burden alone, then actually it's just us. It's not him. We need him. You know, a prayerless burden is going to crush you. And it's probably going to crush the others around you. But if you've got a prayerful burden, if the burden that is, that is on your heart you're bringing to God constantly, then I believe it's going to build you up and it's going to build others up around you. That's how key prayer is. You know, if you've got this burden, it can crush you without prayer. But if you've got this burden with prayer, it can build and do something amazing. Now, I, I often, 
again, I might have to confess this, but I sometimes find prayer quite dangerous. And I say to my wife sometimes, who is a far better prayer than me, both publicly and privately probably, um, I'm not sure I really want to pray now. I don't want to pray because I think God's going to give me something and he's going to put something on my heart that I'm going to have to do something about. And, and it's a wrong attitude. Let me just confess that to you now. That is the wrong attitude. Because I need to learn to say, yes, God is calling me to action, but he's calling me to his action and his plan, to his work. And I, I just need to get with him on that. I need to be part of that with him. And prayer is the key. So prayer should never be dangerous in that sense. I should never come to prayer thinking, oh, Lord, what are you going to give me next? I should come to the Lord and say, Lord, this is what you've given me. Please help me. Please be with me. Please assist me. Please tell me, is this what you want me to do? I mean, that's a very important thing, isn't it, in prayer, is knowing that that burden is from God. So we pray. And I don't want to talk too much about prayer because I'll be stealing what Beth's going to probably talk about next week. But there's another part, a third part I want to talk about. And this, I thought burden was tough and prayer's great, but this is really tough sometimes. The third how in, in helping us know God's call in our life is waiting. <laughs> waiting. When we see an issue, when we see a need, the first reaction, thank you, young people, first reaction when we see that need is to put our cape on, is to be that superhero. We talked again about this a few weeks ago with The Incredibles, didn't we? And there was this part where... <laughs> Edna, who's uh, the person who designs their uh, superhero outfit, says no capes. And that should be, a, sim- that should be a, uh, a thing that we should have up, you know, not, not, not on screen or anything. It should shouldn't be our banner that says, you know, church with no. But we should be people with no capes. We are not superheroes. We're not there to be the solution to the problem. Because the problem with being a superhero is it becomes all about us. This is the story of Nehemiah, but it's not about Nehemiah. The story of this church is not about me or Beth or Marion or Daniel or Miriam or Claudia or any of the other people here. The story of this church is not about us. It's about God. The story of the Salvation Army is not about William and Catherine Booth. They are amazing spiritual giants that I look up to and admire and have inspired my life. But the story of the Salvation Army is not about William and Catherine Booth. None of this is about writing our own story. If it was... We'd put our capes on now, and we'd be off. But God calls us to wait. And in the waiting, he reminds us that life does not always work out the way we want it to. Waiting reminds us that God does not do things in the time that we want it to happen. And the reason is because the world does not revolve around me or around you. The center of the universe is occupied by God. And God alone. This is not our story. This is God's story. You know, if this was Nehemiah's story, I think he'd have gone straight away. But he knows there's a need to wait. Now, waiting does get a bad press. It does get a bad press. But we need to learn how to wait. We need to learn humility. We need to learn how to be dependent on the Lord. We need to understand that the timeline of God is the best timeline. And it is hard at times, but we need to remind ourselves that God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts, and his timelines are not our timelines. Our job is to wait on him. Because as we wait, 
his plans get revealed. Now, if I went back three years from today, now, you know, if you've got a Google thing, sometimes you get like a reminder of where you were three years ago, and it's got a picture of me, not a picture of me, but a picture of a canal, so I must have been going for a walk. If I was on that canal walk, and I could fast forward three years, would I be here? I don't know if I would. I think I'd have probably run. But God was teaching me something. God was teaching me step by step. If I knew what was going to happen with COVID, with my work life, church life, family life, I would have run. I'd have run down the road and said, Lord, no way. That's not going to happen. But God in the waiting revealed his plan step by step. He revealed his plan. And I said yes in each of those waiting moments. If I'd have said yes to all of it as one big package, I would not have done it. But step by step, the Lord said, this is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to do. This is what you're going to do. And he gave me somehow his resilience, his power, his strength to say yes to all those things. Now, I think that's been the story of many of our lives in this room. If we'd have gone back three years and said, this is where we're going to be in three years' time, we would not have probably said yes to it. But God in his mercy, God in the waiting, allowed us to say yes each time. You know, I remember <laughs> Saturday, no, sun, so Sunday, January the 2nd, I remember it uh, quite vividly at 10.45 a.m., the first Sunday that we were leaving. I think there was 10 people here. There was two families, basically, one other family. I remember saying, Lord, if this is it, I say yes. <laughs> if this is it, I say yes. Now, of course, it was the first Sunday in January. I do realize it was a bank holiday weekend, and I do realize that actually people did come through. I think about 50 there by the end of that Sunday. But at that moment in time, at 10.45 a.m., with those two families, the other family may not have said yes, but I said, <laughs> but I said, yes, Lord. This is what we'll do if we have to do it. Because God has led us to that place. We were ready. Praise God. God is preparing you for the next steps. Now, by the time we get to the end of this series, we're going to have a look at Nehemiah 8, and Derek Harrison's going to talk about revival. And we want the next step to be revival. I want the next step to be revival. Amen? But as I go about my daily life, as I go about waiting, as I take those steps, that the next step may not be revival, but we'll get there when we say yes to each step that God puts in our way. Hallelujah. So God has given us something here. I believe he's, he's given us vision for new things. In the midst of that waiting, God is speaking. I believe there will be an increase increase in our relationships, an increase in our sense of community and family, which is nowhere near where it should be at the moment, but it's going to grow. Increase in our reach, increase in our reputation, increase in our restore, anything to do with R, I can think of it, increase in our restoring, increase in our renewal. Hallelujah. But all this comes, all these things come when they are birthed in the waiting on God. And we need to use our waiting time well. You know, this waiting is, is for prayer. It's for relationship. It's for being more in love with Jesus than we've ever been before. Some people like waiting. They think it's an opportunity to do nothing. But believe me, waiting on God is, is not a nothing voidless place. Waiting on God is the fullness of life. Hallelujah. The fullness of life. God is filling you in the waiting. 
Now, you go through Nehemiah 2 and you go through verses 3 to 10. I'm not going to go through them all now. And the king obviously says to Nehemiah, you know, why are you so down? And we recognize that this man is, is the most powerful person. The king of Persia is probably the most powerful person in the world at that time. This is a person you do not go, um, you, don't, you, don't, you, don't, you would not normally want to put a request in, basically. You know what I mean? You would be, you'd be struggling. This is a yes, sir, no, sir. Well, even not sir, is it your majesty? Yes, your majesty. No, your majesty. Three bags for your majesty. It's that type of person that we're dealing with here. But Nehemiah has to make the move. As he waits on God, he knows he has to make a move. He has to ask him for permission to go back to his homeland to help to rebuild a city that he loves. So for me, this is the next part of the how. How of God's call on our, on our life is that we need boldness. We need boldness. Now, the great thing about Nehemiah, he's not bold in some sort of brash, arrogant way. He respects the king. He respects the pagan king. I love that first line, you know, let the king live forever. It's like saying, God save, God save our queen, isn't it? It's honoring the king. It's honoring that person. But he's able to be bold, and he's able to be bold without arrogance. And I have to be honest, sometimes one of the reasons I'm not on social media and I try and avoid it is sometimes the church's picture on social media is of such arrogance in our boldness. But we need to have an arrogant free boldness. We need to have a teachable boldness. That's not the Nehemiah spirit. The Nehemiah spirit is of boldness with respect. The king said to him, this is Nehemiah 2.4, the king said to me, what is it you want? Then I prayed to the God in heaven. That's another example, isn't it, of this prayer, this constant prayer. This conversation was saturated in prayer. And then in verse 5, he answers the king. So he gives the answer after he's prayed. And as we read through chapter 2, you get this discussion between Nehemiah and the king. And this conversation, again, flows from the prayer. It's saturated. This conversation, I'm just going to say, this conversation is saturated in prayer. And we need our conversations, our requests to be saturated in prayer. And as they are, we see the boldness increase. We see that timescales are negotiated. We see that letters of support. And <laughs> this, this feels like slightly, you know, Nehemiah, you're just pushing it a little bit here, aren't you? But he carries on because he's got this prayerful conversation going on. And he's able to step out in boldness. Letters of support, references. I love Nehemiah 2.8 when it says, I may, I may, I have a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the royal park. So if you will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was on me, the king granted my requests. He's pushing it. But praise God. He's pushing those boundaries because he's prayerful. He's asking God at every point. In each bit of the waiting, he's saying, Lord, what do I do next? What do I do next? And the Lord's saying, push it. Go for it. Isn't that brilliant? So Nehemiah has operated with this clear burden, a life saturated in prayer, this ability to wait on God, to know that he is God, that this is his story and not Nehemiah's, with this respectful boldness. And what happens after all those things? God comes and gives him favor. Lord, do we want favor here? Yes, of course. But we need to take those steps, those how steps. Reading this, the verse that comes to mind is 2 Timothy 1.7 that we've not been given a spirit of timidity or fear, but of power, of love, and strong mind, self-control, self-discipline. Now, that sums up for me the Nehemiah spirit. It sums up the Holy Spirit that we have access to, that we've been given this, this power, this love, but also this ability to be strong-minded, to not do things in an arrogant way, but to say, Lord, come, give me self-control, but give me also power and love. 
in every step that I take? Do we want that spirit? Do we want that spirit? God, give us a burden. That's maybe our first cry. God, give us lives saturated in prayer. God, help us to realize that this is your work and not our own. This is your timing and your plan. And Lord, give us the boldness to step out into our call. And Lord, give us favor. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come, Spirit, upon your church, Lord. Help us be that church to have favor. Lord, help us to take the steps that we need to take. Pray, Lord, that you give us a burden for the lost, a burden for the broken. A broken heart for the things that break your heart. And by the way, I know we sing that sometimes in our church. That is a dangerous thing to sing. But when we sing it, if we mean it, God's going to give us a burden. And God's going to give us tears and sweat and anguish. But we need to sing it. Give us a burden, Lord. Saturate our lives in prayer. Saturate this church in prayer. May we have rooms of prayer, houses of prayer, lives of prayer. And in the waiting, help us to worship you, to know your plans, to be deeply in love with you in every step so that we can say yes even when it feels like we should say no. Give us lives full of faith, prepared to step out in boldness. We don't want to hold back, Lord. We want to keep pushing the way that Nehemiah pushed.